good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is ex-con and author Larry Lawton, author of Gangster Redemption. As the first ex-con in the United States to be sworn in as an honorary police officer, Larry Lawton can see policing from both sides of the equation. Policing can always improve, avoiding incidents that have happened around the country in the past five years, but only if police leadership understands how to be true partners with the community by hiring and training the right people, working with the community, and understanding and using the media in the right way. Egos on both sides need to be checked at the door. Larry is featured on ABC, CBS, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. Welcome to the show, Larry. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. Well, you maintain that police really have to be true partners with the community if we're going to do the right thing. If the public's going to do the right thing, if the police officers are going to do the right thing. My question is, are we where, you know, when you look at what's happening today, it appears that we're not doing the right thing, that police, that we are not connected to our police officers, that we don't have the, the right kind of communication. So what do we have to do to improve specifically? Well, there's a couple of things, Catherine, right off the bat. We do. We have a very bad us against them mentality in this country. And it's like butting heads. You have one organization that says we're going to do it this way. And then you have the people who actually pay for those other people saying we're going to do it this way. This has been brewing for many, many years, and the real uh, laying foundation is when the police hire and actually promote people within organizations. It's sad that they promote the people who are SWAT leaders and, uh, you know, tactical people instead of, like, school resource officers. School resource officers actually understand how to communicate with the community, uh, with people, with kids, with teachers. And obviously they have all the training of a police officer, which is, you know, threat assessment and uh, stuff. Notwithstanding the incident here in South Florida, as let your listeners know, I am in South Florida, where the sheriff made, made a lot of mistakes with the incident in Parkland school shooting. And, and I don't want people to think that school resource officers should act that way. And they do an investigation, so I don't want to put blame on anybody in particular until the incident does come out. But on the face of it, there's a lot of mistakes. So we do need to hire and promote, even within, Catherine, the right people. And what's happened is we have a mentality of, you know, lock them up. In the 80s, it was, you know, lock them up, throw away the key. It was, you know, the war on drugs and and our prison system blew up. And now all the negative fruits of that labor are coming back to haunt us where people are getting out and they're not rehabilitated. They're just bitter because obviously look at marijuana. Marijuana is just one incident. Here it is legal in, I think, nine states, and that's totally legal. In 36 states, it's medically legal, something of those nature. And you have people in prison to this day for marijuana. So I think okay, so we're, uh, I'm going to stop you there, Larry, because we're not hiring the right people, as you say. And you gave an example of perhaps in Florida. Are there any examples? I like to kind of juxtapose that with are there good examples where there are communities that we can look to that are hiring the right people uh, who are fixing the policing in the right way? Absolutely, Catherine. And let me give you a great example. Uh, I know you, you thank you for the great introduction. 
Also, I was recognized on the floor of the United States Congress for actually helping kids and police agencies. And here's why. When I got my badge at a place called Lake St. Louis, Missouri, it's just right outside Ferguson and St. Louis, the city, and it's in Missouri. And the police chief there uh, actually called me up and said, I heard about your program, and I'd like to come down to Florida and actually sit through it and look at it and stuff of that nature. I said, absolutely, you can. So he comes to uh, Florida, Central Florida at the time. He goes through my program, talks to judges, prosecutors, uh, public defenders, and the community. And he comes away and he says, Larry, I'd like to offer you a badge. And obviously I said, wait a minute, I don't want a badge. I'm an ex-con. I have a lot of credibility with the community because I went to prison for not telling. That's a whole other story we'll get into. But actually he says, no, Larry, because you don't understand. I'd like you to vet my police department. And when I went out there and I went to St. Louis, uh, Catherine, and when I went to the city, it was amazing because the police chief there, not only hires, he's been, he's been in there for 25 years as the police chief, where the average tenure is three and a half years for a police chief. He's there 25 years. And before that, he was actually the operations manager for the whole world with the Marines MPs. So the guy has impeccable credentials. But here's what he does, Catherine. When he hires people, he tells me, he goes, Larry, when they come into my office, I know they know how to put handcuffs on a person. They know how to put a person in a car, arrest them. He goes, I ask them one question. Why do you want to be a police officer in this city? If they do not say I am here to help the community, I don't hire them. And this is what the chief does also. He doesn't give out awards for most arrests, most DUIs, uh, stuff of that nature. He gives out awards of people who speak at churches, people who speak at schools, uh, officers who change flats. He's instilling from the top down, because in law enforcement, Catherine, change only comes from the top. It's not one of those bottom-up organizations where you can have change. It's a top-down approach. People want to please the chief of police. So what they do while doing that is learn to be more community-minded. They are so community-minded. I was blown away when I went out there, and I go out there all the time now. And it's amazing because even the bad guys, they arrest. They treat with respect, and they say, hey, well, it wasn't the cops' fault. And they have such a connection with the community. It's, it's unbelievable. It's one of the, the guys should be running some organization in the federal government I don't know if you want to do that, but uh, he's the kind of guy that instills how to hire, how to uh, get people with morals, values, and the things that will make a difference in communities and connect the community with the police. So he's the kind of guy who would uh, address your, well, you say you need train, they need training, training, training. Police officers need training, training, training. So you need this police officer this uh, to be Keep training. Yeah, chief of police to be training the other officers. I mean, isn't I mean, isn't somebody that other chief of police men can look up to? Yes, Catherine. What what has to happen is his philosophy of policing is straight help the community. That's their first thought in that city. It is not let's catch someone speeding, let's catch a criminal. Obviously, during the course of their policing, they have to arrest people. They have to you know, do things that are not liked by people who are making, I call it mistakes or or, or bad choices, you know, the criminal element. And he's got such a support because 
he one time, uh, it was a great story, he was going home and he saw one of his police officers changing a flat of a person. And when he, he didn't say anything, the guy didn't see him. Two weeks later, he called the guy's wife, called the city. He brought the guy in. He had no idea. And he gave this guy a big award in front of the city and the people. He goes, Larry, that act just showed my police officers that I'm going to recognize that. And we're going to do things for you guys. Because he gave him an award, a plaque, wrote it up in his record. And now that police officer's got a commendation instead of uh, uh, stuff of that nature. And here, here's the difference, Catherine. It's how he instills how to do that. We have another guy down here in South Florida from Fort Lauderdale, actually, Frank Adderley. He was the police chief of uh, Fort Lauderdale. Now he moved to another agency. And I'll tell you what, he was the same way. He looks for things to help the community. And those are the kind of guys, they are out there. But sadly, you still have the old school, the ones that are hard-nosed, the ones that want to uh, not worry about training, and it is training, 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 and it's training the right way, Catherine. How can police connect with the community when they don't know how to connect with the community? That's what I do as a business now. I actually have a uh, community policing program, and we are now recognized on the floor of Congress for it and uh, doing things to try to open people's eyes and make the police light. Here I am, Catherine, an ex-con. You would think, oh, he hates the police and stuff. I don't. And I was strapped down naked, beaten and tortured in prison. And it's in my book, Gangster Redemption. And Catherine, I don't I am not bitter. It took me a lot of years. I'll be the first to be honest with you and say it took me five years to say I didn't want to kill that person. Because here these men strapped me down, beat me because I wrote articles about the abuses going on in prison. And one man urinated in my face. So if you want to talk about a person who could be bitter, and I've had judges at Larry, I know your story. It's well documented. You're not bitter. And I, you know, I just think I'm a blessed man because I am not bitter. And I want to change the way people view police officers because it's a great, listen, we're not hiring cops the right way because to be quite frankly, we don't have enough qualified people who want to be cops. And that I'm going to blame well, on I'll leadership. Stop you again. There. Why don't, why don't we? Cause I think that's a really important topic or well, issue, I guess. Uh, why don't we have uh, the right, is it because they don't want to get involved in that kind of a situation? You know, the, the you know, the reputation that police officers have, you know, they're in, in certain ways, the public views them. They're, they're the bad guys too. So, you, you know, young men, young you, women you, don't want to go into the police, you know, become police persons. Well, that, that is one of it, and that's why we're changing it, and that is what you're exactly right. You know, they don't want to go into policing, and we can go into the pay and stuff, but even the pay is getting up there again, and they, you know, a long career, a person could be set, you know, for life and if they in the career and they do it the right way. Obviously, when we hire the right people, you're going to have good, uh, good outcomes, and let me give you an example. When the Dallas police shooting happened, and they were like, that was a very sad situation, and the police chief said, we want to hire from the community. Well, I wish he meant that, because the communities they want to hire from, sometimes the people there made mistakes. I'm not saying as bad as mine, Catherine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking they won't hire a kid who had a minor misdemeanor, whether it's a suspended driver's license or a minor marijuana under 20 grams, and they won't hire them. How are you going to get people from the communities that they're serving? 
to lower our economic incidents. You might have a kid who witnessed so much stuff. He was in a room when there was a raid, and he didn't do anything, but he's now in the police records, and they won't give that young man the opportunity to serve his own community. And quite frankly, those are the kids that know it. Obviously, you don't want addicts and stuff of that nature and bad character, but they do need to start reevaluating what that character is. I look you have at to young understand that, tra- that kids that age make poor choices at certain stages Ab- of their life. Absolutely. And then, and, yeah, and then go on, give them an opportunity to make good choices. I agree. I want to also, because what, how does the media fit into all of this? Uh, how do we, you say, using the media in the right way, um, how do we use the media in the right way? Well, you know, Catherine, the media has become an arm of law enforcement, whether good, bad, or indifferent. And there's great examples of, of bad leadership who came out onto the news and made some statements that not only inflamed the community, but made them, you know, put a, a wedge between the community and the police. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The uh, Ferguson police chief, obviously not conveying what happened, not putting things out there quick enough. People think it's a cover up. And then you have another example of the Broward sheriff, Scott Israel, who made some serious mistakes coming on CNN and saying, I'm a great leader and not accepting responsibility. Like uh, obviously, you know, Harry Truman had a plaque on his desk, you know, the buck stops here. Well, using the media to one convey a message to show the community that you're there to help. And here's where I have the problem. And here's a big way they can use it. Instead of coming out, obviously when something is cut and dry, uh, Catherine, arrest him or say he's under indictment or say he's being arrested. They do it to a regular civilian. Don't treat police differently than you treat a regular citizen because that's where the hypocrisy comes because the person says, if that was me, I would be in jail. But they're covering it up. And I don't believe a lot of police chiefs are covering it up. And I do think there are incidents that, that, you know, the laws might need to be changed a little bit or something where the police officer is held accountable more. Now, listen, when I grew up, and I hate to give my age, I'm 56. When I grew up, we knew the police, and I knew many police who never, ever pulled their gun. And again, I'm going to go back with hiring the right people. They weren't scared of the community. They weren't intimidated by the community to take a gun out and point it. Because there's only one, there's only two incidents can happen when a person pulls a gun. And I don't care who it is. It's you either shoot and kill someone, or you get it taken away from you, and uh, negative things happen there, yeah, whether it's your self-confidence or something of that nature, something happens. So there's nothing positive that comes out. There's enough tools out there. When I see a shooting, why did they pull their gun? Obviously, in a threat with this guy with an a AR-15 and he's shooting people, obviously, come on, that, that's not being questioned. What is being questioned is when they pull their gun and when there's no other gun seen and they have their gun out, Why? Are you scared of confrontation? Are you scared to use the other tools you have? Why do you pull your gun? And again, that's going to go back to training, 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 training. Because Can we put that in the light of we had, because we have this recent Toronto massacre, I would call it. Uh, how did the police, in, in, in your opinion, how did they handle, uh, you know, getting the, you know, obviously they uh, were able to, on the scene, I guess, um, arrest the guy who did it. Uh, who So... How do you see them? Did, did they handle it well, the, the incident? Yes. Ac- actually, the Toronto, of course, I follow all policing incidents around the whole world, actually, because I do get called from Canada and Mexico and even France and, uh, and England. 
the uh, totally they handled it pretty good. They understood. They were out front with the community. I even told them about the street shutdowns and how the investigation was going to go for three days. Expect delays. So they're being a partner with the community instead of this is the way it's happening. We're going to do it. They said, you know, please expect delays. Please understand that we're doing a, 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 a 10 people homicide. I think it was eight or 10 people homicide. Nine was it? I think it nine killed, 17 injured, I think it was. But, and they knew that they had to get out front of the incident in the right way. Actually preventing that incident, it's a whole other topic for your show, Catherine, because, you know, a person using a vehicle as a weapon is not, is not something new. And it is something that we have to, you know, look into deeper, whether it's more where a lot of pedestrians are. Do we put up, uh, 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 you know, barriers? And, of course, mental illness of these people is the big, one of the biggest issues of today's society. And it, and it, and it stems from prison. I can go into how mental illness is in prisons and, and they just warehouse mental, mental people and then they let them back on the street. So there's a lot of incidents there that we need to address. But the police in Toronto did a great job, and I want to commend them for that. And uh, I think uh, uh, we, that's needed more. And when you ask the question, how does the media get involved, the media is your voice. How you convey a message is how the media is going to take it and, and spin it or bring it out there. So you need the media to be a partner with yours, not an adversary, not a person you're willing to fight. You know, when they ask questions, Answer them as honestly as you can. When I hear them come out, yes, they should come out. On the, uh, if there's an incident with a person on video shooting someone in this, they got to step back and say, wait a minute. We don't have the total information because the body cam camera, we will have it within eight hours, six hours, whatever that immediate is going to be, the quicker the better. And when they say, oh, the camera stopped or something of that, there's the mistrust right there. So you can't have that. You can't have it both ways. And if, sadly, when you see a shooting or you see a beating and you have five cops around a young man or somebody being beaten by a cop and those cops around them did not stop that guy, they were witnessing a crime. They should have stopped that man or reported it the minute it happened. Go back to their superior and say, I couldn't do this. I didn't want to do it in front of people. But that man did this because I heard this. And they should get their own. Again, policing their own is very important because it becomes hypocrisy if, you, if you're not going to you know, police your people, but you're only going to police the citizens. Well, how does the, the issue, and we're talking about values, because you talk about values, um, what in, in your program, how does, the, how does racism come into or play at all of this? I mean, you just gave an example of police officers beating up somebody, uh, maybe uh, some African-American and, and, and male, I think also sexism comes into play. H- how does that work? I mean, if you're going to hire, well, I guess that gets back to hiring the right people, hiring good people, hiring good police officers, not muscle men, but people who have a brain and a heart. Absolutely. But you also missed what, when the training comes about, I went to a great conference by NASLE, or I'm help, I helped them. It's called the National Association of School Safety Law Enforcement Officials. And I'm part of that uh, organization by helping them in a lot of ways. I speak at the, at the conferences and, and do a lot of stuff for them. And they're actually in my newsletter. But what I talk about is I went to a conference, and what we all were talking about is implicit bias. You know, we all have biases. We just don't know them or we don't act on them or we're smart enough to step back and look at ourselves from a third person or an objective position and say, wait a minute, 
Why am I thinking that way? We all have implicit biases. It's how do you control your biases? And obviously, under a stressful situation or a dangerous situation, when you have to act, it, it comes out quicker, and it, become, it, can be, it could be negative or it could be positive. So, you know, you have to use your training, 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 and your values and the character of the people we hire. You know, by hiring the people who are people who may have been bullied or people who wanted a badge to show they're, they're, they're courageous and they want to uphold the law. You know, when I speak to police chiefs, like his name is Chief Mike Force, uh, the Lake St. Louis, the best I ever, and Frank Adderley, who's a police chief in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They're one of the best characters and the best people who sit back and look at situations from a different point of view. They don't look at it and say, oh, you know, that's uh, it's not cut and dry. Situations aren't cut and dry, and leaders who think there's a handbook for that are off. Again, that's where we got to promote people who are community-minded and people who are understand communications. Let me give you a number, Catherine. And I just want to add to that before you give me the number, Larry, because I think what comes up in my mind is people who are self-aware, you know, step back and can take a look at themselves, know where their biases come from so that they will know how to act in in certain in situations. So you have to be self-aware, reflective, I think, as you were describing those two men. Absolutely, Catherine, you're 100 percent. What the number I was going to give you is. 70% 70% of all interactions, negative interactions with the community come from male officers. And here is why. Female officers have learned how to use communications as a tool and not bravado. Obviously, I'm a pretty big guy and a, and a fighter. It'd be hard for most women to take me down physically. But they can talk to me differently where I don't want to confront them and I'm not going to hit a woman. So they know how to communicate with me better, so there are less incidents. And obviously, training should be brought to police officers like that. More of the, I I hate to say timid, because they're not timid. They're some of the best in the world, women police officers, because they know how to read a situation, use their own values, and use the communication skills that they've grown up with to get out of problems like that and to de-escalate situations, not escalate situations. Larry, your own story, and you sort of touched on that, well, what happened to you when you were in prison, but how did it all start? How did you become an ex-con? What happened? Obviously, you had to, you were involved with the police uh, before you wound up in federal prison. So what's your story? Well, you know, the whole, the basis of my story is I grew up born and raised in the Bronx in Brooklyn, New York. I got involved with organized crime at a very young age, doing, you know, small crimes as a young kid, and then went to the service. I did do good. I got hurt in the service. When I got out of the service, right back to where I was, and I, and I ended up robbing jewelry stores. I'm not proud of that. I tell that to everybody. I, I try to make amends to that. I didn't hurt anybody or kill anybody in robberies, but you do put fear in people and stuff of that nature. I was end up get, being caught by the major case squad from Quantico, Virginia, the FBI, and they're the best of the best. And I actually have a lot of respect for them, the way they treated me and the way, you know, we, we talked about even the incidents. I did not tell, and they weren't stick, sticking over me and saying, you have to do this, you have to do I had to face the, face the gauntlet. I ended up uh, doing 
12 years in prison when I was offered three years. And let me give you why that's an important statement. What we do, and I talked about this with police officers, when we catch a small kid doing an ounce of weed, has an ounce of weed, and we want to get him for, uh, you know, distributing weed and put him in prison, and they threaten that young man and that, that he's going to go to prison. But if he tells on his friend, now the kids I'm dealing with, a lot of them come from communities, uh, Catherine, that are very disadvantaged and they don't have anything but their word. So when you take that away from that young man, as I told the conference, I said, listen, we're not going to get Pablo Escobar or one of these big uh, El Chapos in your community. These young kids are taking away the last thing we have, and that's their dignity. And here's what also happens. You... Not You also teach that young man how to get out of a problem by telling, and he's going to hold back information. So we really do absolutely no good for the community by not trying to help that young man. Why is he selling drugs? Why is he doing stuff of that nature? Take my case. I look at the same thing with my own case. I didn't tell, and it was because of my, you know, I wanted my own word to mean something. Obviously, even today, coming on your show, when I tell someone I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. That's very important to me because of my word means something to me. And I think that's what we're taking away from young men. And again, that makes them look at police differently. Policing is part of social work. And you know social work better than anybody, Catherine. And it's just the way it is. And it should be. You know, we look back at my age and I look back at Andy Taylor. You know, he walked around without a gun. And Barney Fife had a bullet in his pocket. So they're, they're not out pulling guns or doing stuff, but they're, they're protecting the community and they're commu- communicating with issues. And it was a great show. And I don't mean to say that's the way it is. Times have changed, yes. But you know what? The only thing that really has changed is that people know about what's going on. Policing and negative policing has been going on for a long time. But now with cameras and, and uh, communication devices everywhere, it's out there immediately. And that's, again, where I'll get back to the media. The media is, has to be part of the team because negative stuff out there by a person will hurt it worse than the police, you know, communications from the media saying this is exactly what happened. So that's why they have to be part of the team and not a us-against-them mentality. All right, Larry, with a couple minutes left, um, and by the way, you're doing a fantastic job, uh, we want to know more information about you, uh, you mentioned uh, you have a newsletter, you have a book, you have training programs. Give us websites where we can go to 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 access all of this information. Sure, there's two things. We have something really great coming out, and I, I put together a team of a former judge and forty five forty five year criminal defense attorney, a psychologist, a a law enforcement official, and myself, where we do videos every single week. So we do have a service, and that's at, and it's so cheap. It's 5 bucks a month, $4.99 a month. And people ask me, why are you doing it so cheap? Because I want to get the information out to everybody. So the videos from the judge and, and, and lawyer are going to be, can my son or daughter be emancipated? Or what to do if your son or daughter gets arrested? Other ones, the police officer talks about how to handle a traffic stop. Psychologist talks about what is teen, teen cutting with kids doing cutting. I talk about issues from making bad choices to what to do, to how to rehabilitate somebody, to how to change the behavior of your son or daughter. So we have realitycheckprogram.com. That's realitycheckprogram.com. And obviously, I work with police agencies very closely. So if there's police officers and they want to use our program, they actually use our program in, in a great way. So it's really important 
to do that, you know, to Great. make sure uh, we, we got it all together like that. Larry, thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing all of that information. Uh, good luck with all the training programs. Obviously, we really need it. But Larry Lawton, he's a, an ex-con. He's an author. He's many things, but his book is Gangster Redemption. Thank you very much, Catherine, for having me on. Keep up the great work. And uh, if you need any other information or anybody needs us, please feel free to contact us. Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is prosecutor, legal analyst, and author Stacey Honowitz. As a 30-year veteran of the Florida State Attorney's Office and supervisor of the Sex Crimes and Child Abuse Unit, Stacey Honowitz is on a mission to make the discussion of sex crimes and reporting become mainstream and no longer taboo. When she isn't putting bad guys behind bars, she's educating parents and children about child molestation and the importance of reporting abuse as the first step to healing. She tackles this delicate subject with her books, My Privates Are Private and Genius with a Penis, don't touch. 
Uh, she is featured on GMA, NBC, CNN, MSNBC. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Stacy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad that uh, you're tackling this subject because I think that people really need to know well, what's going on today. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and discuss that. And this crime. is, as we said earlier before we got on the air, this is Child Abuse Prevention Month. So obviously this is an appropriate topic. And I do want to focus on your mission, uh, the, the ability, particularly in my field as a social worker, uh, to talk about, first of all, why is it so difficult for people to dis- discuss crimes, sex crimes, with adults and children? That's the major. If you don't can't talk about it, then you, it's very difficult to do something about it. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that's really what the mission is all about. It's getting people to not um, bury their heads in the sand. Uh, when it comes to this topic. Look, it's a very delicate subject. Nobody wants to talk about their private parts, and certainly nobody wants to talk about somebody violating or touching their private parts. So you get a combination of the two, um, and you, what you, the result is people kind of keeping this a secret. I mean, this has been going on for years and years. We are really just in the last 10 years beginning to see that it's becoming kind of commonplace to talk about it. And we owe a lot of that to the media because of some of the things that are going on in the press, specifically even now the Bill Cosby trial is going on. We had it when Michael Jackson was on trial, you know, years ago. But it still remains a very quieted uh, discussion. And it's so important for parents and educators and coaches and, and everybody else to kind of get on the ball and not be afraid to educate kids because education is knowledge. And when you have knowledge, you have power to go ahead and do something to take care of yourself. So we are seeing so many cases uh, nowadays in the paper. Oh, you know, put on the news, open the paper, you hear about a coach. Um, the most famous thing that we've just heard about recently is the Olympic uh, athletes, the elite athletes that came forward to say that they were sexually abused. So if they can come forward and talk about it and realize that they probably should have talked about it a while ago, then anybody um, can probably come forward now and say, I'm not embarrassed, I'm not ashamed, I want to talk about what happened to me. I think one of the issues, Stacey, is also, uh, and I want you to comment on this, is when you are, if you're able to talk about the abuse and you're able to talk about what happened, uh, one of the issue problems is you very often, or maybe most often, the person who is abusing you may be a parent, a teacher, as you mentioned, a coach. In this case, in the Olympics, mm-hmm. it was a doctor. So you have these people that in your life that you trust or seemingly trust, and they're the. It, it's much more <clears throat> frightening to accuse those people than it, it's not the you know the guy out in the street who uh, you know the killer out in the street or somebody who looks like that, it's, it's right in your own environment, in your own home, in your own school, in your own sports team. Yeah, you're 100% right. That, that is one of the factors that makes these cases so difficult to not only talk about, but then to later on prosecute. Because we find that most of the cases aren't stranger cases. They are just what you talked about. They are the coach that you've, that's been training you, the teacher that's been teaching you, a parent who's in the house, an uncle, an aunt, a relative, somebody that you have an ongoing relationship to begin with. And then when that relationship is tainted by a violation, um, then it becomes much more confusing for the victim because they know that something happened 
They know that what happened is wrong, but then they take that next step and they say, but can I report that person? That person is a, an adult that I know, an uncle, an aunt, a family member. Do I want to break up the family? That guy is the coach that's been training me and trains all these other people. Do I now destroy his life by saying that he did something to me? So what you just mentioned is part and parcel of why these cases are so difficult because we've heard the term grooming. We've, we've heard that term. And what does that really mean? That really means someone that kind of gains your trust by being a coach, by being a teacher, by someone that mentors you and gains your trust so much that you think to yourself, if something happened, I'm not going to report them because they're good to me. They teach me. They buy me things. They do things for me. And so the, the perpetrator, the manipulator, knows that this is going on in the victim's mind, thinks to themselves, well, look what I'm doing for this child. They're never going to report me. I'll start slowly. I will be, take my time. I will buy them gifts. I will do whatever they need to do. And this is all a process. So pedophilia and child abuse and sexual abuse is, is such a manipulative crime that it does confuse the victim, Catherine. You're 100% right. And that's why we find ourselves in this predicament that maybe kids won't tell until they're older, that maybe once they tell, they don't want to go into a courtroom because they've gotten pressure from family members or other kids. It makes this crime extremely difficult to deal with on many levels. Yeah. I mean, they have an emo- the kids, the children have an emotional stake in it, very often, what, you know, what we've been talking about. And then they also have a financial stake stake. I mean, you have children who are going, are being uh, not only groomed in terms of uh, from the sexual, from the predator, from their coach, but if they tell, then their their career is seemingly over if they're a gymnast or, you know, whatever the sport is, because, you know, the, like, what's his name, Sandusky, all of those kinds of cases, there's, there's the emotional stake as well as the financial stake. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're in that type of situation, now, for instance, my case, I had a case against a gymnastics coach, and it was featured in the Indy Star investigation, and then USA, USA Today picked it up, and that's really was the preamble to the Larry Nassar case. One of the victims on him saw the cases that I was dealing with and some of these other cases and thought, well, well, it's not just a coach, it's a doctor, and that's how the ball got rolling. So, you know, we, we hear about these cases, you know, people would be so shocked to know that when I prosecuted this gymnastics coach at the bond hearing, how many mothers, and this guy had a record, this guy had a history of doing these things. He'd been gym hopping all over the place. I presented that to the judge, and how many parents in the audience were screaming at me because this was their daughter's career. They were almost living vicariously through this kid who was going to take, you know, this coach was going to take their kid to the top. And how dare I accuse him of this? Was it me? It was the children accusing him. So, yes, there is a definite stake when kids are, are elite athletes or want to go into athletics and their coach is involved. There, like I said, there are so many uh, things that go on in a, in a kid's head when they're deciding whether or not to report it. The other issue is that some of kids don't exactly know what sex abuse is. So my mission is to talk about what sexual abuse is so that they know because Allie Reisman and some of these athletes, they were just on Dateline the other night, they pretty much said they didn't even realize it was sexual abuse at the time. So my mission is really twofold, to to have parents educate their kids and to be able to talk about private parts and then to know if, in fact, they are being abused or even if they think they're being abused, 
to to have the the smarts and the and the strength to then go and report it so that they're not I think perpetual the parents victims. Them- yeah, I think the parents themselves, though, need a lot of education. I mean, I think parents, many parents, I don't know the statistics, but have a lot of difficulty being truthful with their kids when it comes to having a talk about sex or it was, it, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. I go back to when my kids, when they started some of the programs in school, uh, it, I don't know what they called it, but um, they were they were getting you know you had to sign a release form saying that they could get go into a class where they would teach them uh, sexual education or whatever the title was. Yeah. And I had a, I had a laugh. I actually laughed with my kids because you weren't allowed to say the word penis. You weren't allowed to say the word vagina. It was actually private parts or or someplace if somebody touched you under your bathing suit and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, and this is, this is what they're learning. This is, I, I don't know if things have come further than that. I mean, you have more experience in that, obviously, now uh, when you're actually teaching kids, are they, uh, do, the, do they tell it like it is? No, that, that's, that's, that's a big part of what I talk about, the fake names that are given to private parts. And when I educate parents, when I go out, I say, listen, you know, it's not the kids that are embarrassed by the words. If you teach a three-year-old that that's the vagina and that's their penis, it's almost like saying that's your elbow and that's your eye. Why are we so not afraid to talk about every other part of the body, the anatomy, and yet when we get to that, we, we give them fake names? Um, this is a real problem because it's parents that are embarrassed by it, not a kid. Like I said, if you teach a three-year-old that's their vagina, that's all they know. It's not funny. It's not embarrassing. That's what they know. And I, and I see this firsthand because of my books. My second book, my privates are private. You know, I had a catchy name to it and they talk about private parts and that's what they teach. Private. It was kind of hard to rhyme a vagina because my books are rhyming in nature because I think kids learn faster when things rhyme. I think it's easier for them. But my second book, my genius, uh, genius with a penis don't touch. Anytime I'm interviewed, uh, present company excluded, they never mentioned that book. And I asked them, why don't you mention that book? And because the word penis is involved. You know, I just um, did a segment for a, and I'm, I'm thrilled to death that they, that they did this. They came from Texas and they interviewed me about my books and what I do and how important and, and whatever. And it just aired the other night. But in watching the, the, the playback, they've, boldly show my privates are private and genius with a penis in the first three minutes. And then they never, t- they only talk about my privates are private after that. They do not mention genius with a penis. And I know what that's about because when I've had to write articles for periodicals and I mention, they only mention my privates are private. They will not touch genius with a penis. And I got to tell you something. It's the most ridiculous. It's frustrating. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, you know, on morning TV, they will not talk about it. And this is what's going on. People should really come and sit in court or sit in my office and see the amount of cases that I have to see how much of this is going on. You know, we have no issues on, on um, when the media wants to cover a Kardashian or anybody else that's exposing themselves. But when we want to talk about this stuff and get to the Nick grit, it all of a sudden becomes very taboo. And, and that's why I'm so passionate and that's why I, I try to get on as many things as I can and talk to parents because this is... This is a real problem, and it's not just, you know, poor kids or black kids or white kids on, you know, low income. It's, it's sex crimes knows no boundaries. You could be the richest of rich and the poorest of poor as a victim or a perpetrator. I've prosecuted very rich subjects, 
and very poor ones. I've prosecuted doctors, I've prosecuted janitors, and I've had victims that are from wealthy, wealthy families and victims that are from the poorest families. So people have to realize that this crime knows no boundaries. Anybody can be affected by it. And it's, it's a real, you know, issue when, when, when Sandusky came out, everybody was all over it, and then it went away. And now the athletes are all over it, and, and we're hoping that it, that it doesn't go away because it needs to be constantly in the mix. How do you think the Me Too movement fits into this, or, or does it? Oh, well, it does, but I, I just want your take on that. I I mean, well, I, you know, I think Me Too serves a good purpose in that it gives, there's always strength in numbers, and I think people are seeing people that would never normally speak out that are now speaking out and saying, you know what, it happened to me. We hope that in a movement like this where that gets a lot of publicity, we hope that people just aren't kind of jumping on it because they want kind of publicity or they want to be a part of something. But I think Me Too is, as, serves a lot of purposes. It's not just for sexual abuse. It's for people that have been verbally abused. You know, it's almost like a woman's movement. Like, we've been treated like this for a long time, and we're not going to take it anymore. And that includes um, sex, being sexually abused and, and not talking about it because we were fearful that we're going to lose our jobs and our position. So it does serve a good purpose, um, but I, I don't see a lot of it in, in, in my day-to-day uh, things. Do you think, uh, Stacey, that there are, there's more incidences of sexual abuse, and you, there are some statistics, I know you have the statistics, than ever before, or there's just more reporting of, of, of the I incidents? I, I yeah. think you're right. I think you're, I like it's always been going on for, for a very long time, and how do we know that? Because when I have cases that uh, where a, a woman a woman now comes to me and says, when I was a child, I was getting abused. So we know it, it was it's go, it's been going on for years. I think it's the idea that now people are more prone to report it. We are seeing that that's the change that we're seeing. Because I do get a lot of cases, and I just had a case yesterday with a woman who claimed she was you know abused when she was twelve or thirteen. I do have the evidence of it. And um, she just said she couldn't come forward back then. She feels a strength now that she can. I don't think it's just due to the Me Too movement. I think that, you know, when people, um, like we talked about, all the reasons why you might not report, and I think when you become an adult, you start realizing that maybe there were things in my childhood I should have talked about that affect you later on in life. And that's, and that's, that's why I think we um, now we're, we're more apt. It's not as shameful to report it as it was back then. You didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about it because you were ashamed. Your parents didn't want to talk about it because you were, they knew people in the neighborhood or maybe they knew that person. I mean, there's, like I said, there is so, no one can pinpoint a reason why someone might not report. I think it's, it's just a slew uh, of reasons. And, and now they have more confidence, you know, and they think they can handle it. And so they come forward now. What about the stories? You know, that's always an issue. Well, this happened to you when you were 12. Why are you reporting at age 24? And how much can you really remember? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, every case that gets reported to me, I cannot prosecute. And I have to honestly tell you, I have to be able to go into a courtroom with a case that's going to get me a reasonable likelihood of conviction. And that means that I have to have evidence. Look, you have to look as a prosecutor and certainly as one who's been doing it for, you know, it'll be 30 years in October for me. Um, you have to be able to take a step back and say, listen, I can't just go into court and present this with a child who says I was 11 or 12 at the time and hang it on the word of a child. The defendant has rights. Anybody can make an allegation. You have to be able to prove it. You have to be able to go into court and have evidence. And I don't always have it. 
And I always tell the people when I can't go forward, listen, it's not to say that I don't believe you. It's a matter of being able to go into a courtroom and convince six people and say that you have to say beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt, this person did this to me back then. And if you can't remember it, I'm glad you're talking about it. I know it feels better for them to kind of report it and get it off their chest. And lots of times that's where it ends. That's where it ends, that I cannot go forward on a case. Yeah, that that was my next question. Like when you can't, for all the reasons you just named, for legal reasons, then what happens to this person? Do they, is there, or do they, does it just stop there with you? Or No, I mean, yeah. I try to get, we have services to provide for them. We tell them we have victim advocates that are excellent that work with them. And certainly, I, I like I said, it's, there's no easy way of saying I can't prosecute this. There's just no easy way of doing that. But sometimes, and a lot of times I have to say, they do realize it. And a lot of them will come to me, even when it's reported, they say, listen, I know it's not going to be able to go to court. I just needed my day. I needed my day of talking to someone, of reporting what happened to me and having it on record. But there are services to provide for them afterwards. And the, the, the most important thing is that we get them away from the person. Even if I can't go into court, then there's a way for us to just keep them away from that person. You know, even with little kids now, if I have a mother that comes in and says it was the boyfriend or the father and I still say I, I can't go forward, then at least the mother knows I, th- th- there's no longer any contact. There's just, you know, it's just not, that child's never going to be with that person again. So it's a, it's a slippery slope. It's difficult. But, you know, like I said, I cannot, not every case is prosecutable. It's just not. That's just impossible. That's just the reality of it, obviously. Yeah, and, that, that's, yeah. that's the reality. Uh, you talk about also celebrities and uh, people who are famous who begin to talk about their own cases of sexual abuse, that that's very helpful for all of us in the general public. If, if they can do it, if they can talk, then then that gives uh, permission for others to talk about their experience of, of sexual abuse. Yeah, I think that if you have a, a person that you see... Listen, our culture this day and age is all about celebrity. We know that. You know, the sad part is that I have a lot of girls that come in my office that are a little bit older that say to me, well, why, should, why do I need to go to college? I look at all these people on reality shows, and, and the truth of the matter is they are making very good money, and they get endorsement deals, and they get commercials. And, you know, so that's the sad part of, of what's going on society-wise and role models for girls now. I think the role models are so few and far between. I, I hate to say that, but, you know, stripping and showing it on Instagram to me is not, um, it's just not a role model. And I think that the other important role models aren't getting enough attention. The, can't, the oncologist, the scientist, the NASA person, the prosecutor, the, you know, people that, that, that do a lot for the community. I'm not saying that a reality star doesn't, but I'm saying that, that, that's what we're looking up to these days. The flip side to that is this, that if they are so um, dynamic in the media and something has happened to them like sexual abuse and they do come forward, then you do have a lot of their followers and their, their um, people that idolize them that will say, well, look, it's, they could do it, I can do it. And so I have been on panels um, with various celebrities that have been abused and, and I think it is good for them to talk about stuff like that because I think it does give rise to other girls that might say, well, if she can do what I can. And I think that's exactly what Allie Reisman is doing for people now. Look, I'm an Olympic elite athlete. I'm a gold medalist. 
I'm telling you what this man did to me. I don't want to have to talk about my vagina. I don't want to have to talk about that he put his fingers in my vagina, but that's what he did. I was sexually abused. Don't let it happen to you. You know, so, you know, I always have tried to kind of get a celebrity to kind of endorse what I do because I know that more people would pay attention. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. That's why product placement is so important for companies because these celebrities have the ability to sell, have the ability to change people's minds about things. And I would love if somebody would come on board. You know, it would be very helpful to me in getting the word out because I am met, believe it or not, with a ton of resistance with this stuff. You know, how do you go on a morning show? How do you not? How do you not have me on a morning show when mothers are your target audience and you're telling them about where to buy gifts and how to write thank you notes and how to talk to your kids about skipping school and bullying and not have me on to talk about how to talk to your kids about their private parts? And it's just, it's just it baffles me. It, just, it really does. I will, I will forge ahead. I've been doing it for a long time. But it's, it's a hard road. But this is reality. This is really what goes on. The statistics are there. And I can tell you from my case count, from the amount of kids I see in a day um, about this, it's, it's hard not to say I need to get involved somehow. Well, I, then I think you, you need or should or could do this. Get a celebrity on board with you because they have such a wide audience. That's the other piece of it. And yeah. When, I mean, yeah. We you know, have a couple it's been a mission. It's been a push and it keeps going. That's people like you who, who invite me on to talk about this stuff that it gets the word out. And I think more people need to follow your lead and say, let's talk about it. It's not pretty. It's not, it's not something that it's for me. It's, it's, it's water cooler talk only because I talk about it every day. So for me to get up and talk about penis, vagina, ejaculation, penetration, you know, it, for somebody else it could be like, oh, my God, there's no way. But if you, if you realize the importance of it and you realize that if you teach early on this type of thing, you know, you, 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 someone will be saved by it. Someone will know that I, you can't do that to me. I'm going to tell. And I'm not going to be afraid to, and I'm not afraid to go to court. I'm not afraid to speak my mind. And, and I guess Me Too kind of symbolizes all of that. And I just wish there was kind of like a Me Too for, for young sexual assault victims. I guess maybe that's what my movement is. And that's your movement. So and, and now I'm going to... We have 30 seconds left, but I am going to mention the books again. My privates are private and genius with a penis. Don't touch. Stacy Honowitz. You can buy the book at Amazon bookstores everywhere. You can't buy it on ebook yet, right? I, I tried to do that. I don't know. You know, they told me that they were going to try to do it on ebook, but certainly my website, stacyhonowitz.com or Amazon, um, you can get them there. If anybody has a problem, contact me through my website, and I certainly will, will help them figure out a way to get it, or I'll get, I'll get it to them. Great. Stacy. thanks so much for being on the show today. Very informative. Uh, great show. Thanks, Catherine. And- thanks for having me so much. Take care. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 